strange getting up to preach this early. I guess I could go for like an hour and that would be all right. Uh, some of y'all know that uh, I grew up in the state of North Carolina and I uh, was a lifelong Tar Heel basketball fan, an alumnus of that uh, particular institution. If my voice goes out during the sermon, uh, it's because I was required to scream at my TV for about two and a half hours last night uh, as we sent Coach K off in the best way possible. So, anyway, uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 20 together. Uh, we're going to look at verses 17 to 28. I wish I could say that I planned for this passage to be the one I was preaching on the Sunday that we were ordaining new elders, but it's not. This, this was set months ago. Uh, so it's kind of amazing in, that God in his providence has given us such an appropriate passage as we're reflecting on leadership and authority and goodness in the church. But this is God's word for us today. This is Matthew 20, verses 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And he said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And Father, we pray now that you would also give us your spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would teach us from your word that you would shape us, that you would show us our sin, and that you would show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The story opens as Jesus and his disciples have begun their voyage to Jerusalem. 
They are going to Jerusalem for the culmination of Christ's earthly ministry. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows that he is going to Jerusalem and he will be betrayed and he will be arrested and he will be killed and he will be raised. And so as he is traveling, he wants to give his disciples a sense of what is coming. And so as they're traveling, and he probably has a a sizable following with him, he pulls aside the 12 disciples to tell them what is coming, that they will be going to Jerusalem, and there he will be arrested and betrayed and crucified, but on the third day will be raised. It's a serious and a somber moment for the disciples, and it's interrupted by a mother with a request. This serious moment is interrupted as a a mother of two of the disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, comes up to Jesus and says that she has a request. Jesus says, what is it that you want? And she says, I want one of my sons to sit at your right hand and the other one of my sons to sit at your left hand in your kingdom. This is not great timing, for one thing. Jesus has just told his disciples a very serious thing. Like, this is it. We are marching toward the end. And she comes up immediately with a request. And this request is that her sons would have the positions of authority and honor in the kingdom. To sit at the right and left hand with the positions of great renown in a kingdom. And she's saying, I want my two boys to be the most important disciples in your kingdom. We talk a lot in our modern world about helicopter parents. Parents who hover over their children and try to make sure they don't get hurt. And we've even now started talking about bulldozer parents. Parents that sort of clear all of the obstacles out of the way for their children to have a safe and fruitful path through life. And sometimes we want to act like these are entirely modern phenomena. They are not. James and John's mom might be the first bulldozer parent that we have in the Bible. The story continues. Jesus looks at her with what I love as a response. He says, you have no idea what you are asking. You have no idea what you are even saying. And he looks at the two boys who are standing there, you can only imagine, kind of sheepishly behind mom. The two adult men who are standing there sheepishly behind their mom. He looks at them and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say, yep. They didn't know what they were asking, and then they didn't know what they were answering, but the point is they didn't know anything at all. This cup that Jesus is talking about is an image that the Bible uses to describe God's wrath. You see it in Psalm 75. It says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup that Jesus is about to drink is a cup of God's wrath as he takes on to himself on the cross God's wrath against sin and rebellion and disobedience. 
These disciples have no ability to even comprehend what Jesus is saying. And they're like, yep, we can totally do that. This is the same cup that in a few chapters, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane and cry out to his father, Father, let this cup pass from me. If this is your will, Jesus himself is trembling before the idea of even drinking this cup. His disciples with sort of foolhardy pride and arrogance and self-assuredness say, yep, we can handle that, Jesus. We are ready to sit at your right and left hand. Jesus' response to that is not the rebuke that I would probably give if I were Jesus. And it's a good thing I'm not Jesus, just in case any of you were confused about that. Jesus says, you will drink my cup. And what Jesus means by that is that these disciples will not escape suffering. These disciples will not escape the difficulty and the hardship of which Christ's cross is the type that we all as God's people will live out. We see it all throughout the New Testament. In fact, we have the stories of James and John's deaths and their suffering throughout the later New Testament. James is killed in Acts 12. John is exiled to an island called Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. Jesus says, and and Paul reminds us, even in the New Testament in Romans 8, that suffering is just part of our life in this world and that we will be glorified with Christ provided that we suffer with him. We can't drink the cup, but Jesus says we will drink the cup. And Jesus says also you need to know that the people who are going to be at my right and my left hand when I enter my kingdom, that's not mine to grant. That is those for whom it has been prepared by my heavenly Father. We meet those two in just a few chapters. When Jesus enters into his kingdom, it's thieves and sinners who are at his right and his left hand. It is thieves who are crucified alongside with him at his right and left hand. James and John, like like Jesus says, don't even know what they're asking and they might not have volunteered for the position if they'd known what it was. And as you can imagine, the other disciples kind of get wind of this conversation that's happening, this conversation between their mom and then James and John and Jesus, and they are absolutely indignant. You can imagine how it kind of percolated through the disciples. Maybe they were having prayer requests. I just want to pray for James and John. Did you hear what they did? Do they think they're better than us? The disciples are indignant. And what's important for us to know is that it's not an indignation because their motives are somehow more pure or better. They want those same positions. They want the same thing. They also want the positions of honor and authority in the kingdom. And so they're mad that two guys got there and asked for it first. And so what does Jesus do? He calls the disciples to him. You see it in verse 25. He calls them to him and he says, listen, in the world, authority looks like power. Authority looks like being exalted over other people and getting to do what you want and having people serve you. And that is not how it works in the kingdom. 
In the kingdom, it's not about being served. In the kingdom, it's about serving. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, learn to serve. Learn to give not of yourself, but to give your very self on behalf of other people. That is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. And in fact, that's what I'm doing as well. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I want to think about what Jesus is saying about the nature of power and authority in the kingdom because he's saying greatness in the kingdom looks completely different than greatness in the world. And what we're going to look at in these verses, we're going to look at uh, our posture in the church, we're going to look at our posture in the world, and we're going to think about our posture towards ourselves. Those are the three big headings for us this morning. Let's think about our posture in the church. Jesus wants us to be great. Don't miss that. Jesus isn't saying greatness and ambition are wrong. Jesus wants his disciples to be great, but Jesus radically redefines greatness. What Jesus says is that in the church, it's not skill, it's not giftedness, it's not a track record of proven results or success, and it's not position, and it's not title that make for greatness. It's humility and service. Humility and service are the marks of greatness in the church. And one of the things this means is that in the church there is often an inverse relationship between greatness and visibility. The greatest in the church is not normally the one who is up front. Friends, I am the most replaceable person in this church. Greatness in the church looks like what so many of you are doing. Caring at home for aging parents, taking all of your time and effort, or for young children for that matter, serving and loving and giving your very self is great in the church. People at home who are infirm or in constant pain who can only pray for the church. Friends, that is greatness in the kingdom. To pour yourself out before the Lord for the congregation God has given you to love. Those of you who call and check on other people in the church that you think might be suffering or think might need something. That is greatness in the church. People who check the cabinets and order kitchen supplies, an invisible thing that makes life livable here. That is greatness in the church. People who drive others to doctor's appointments that couldn't otherwise go. That is greatness in the kingdom. Bringing food to people who are going through a rough spot or just because the Lord brought it to mind to take them a meal. That is greatness in the kingdom, and in the church. Visiting the grieving is greatness in the kingdom and the church. 
being available to help, being a person who's just around and able to do things and wanting to do things and willing to do things is greatness in Christ's kingdom. And this is why so many pastors are going to be janitors in the new heavens and the new earth while you all are glorious beyond belief. There's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, uh, which is a, a strange story. It's hard to even explain all of what it's about, but it's about a guy who gets on a bus and winds up in heaven, uh, but kind of on the outskirts of heaven. And he gets sort of a glimpse of what is most true, what is most glorious, what is most beautiful and good. And as he is standing there, he has sort of a a guide who is explaining to him the things that he is seeing and experiencing, he sees this great procession go by. And there's musicians, and there's dancers, and there's this great celebration, and it's all in culmination as this woman walks by who is glorious to behold. And the, and the main character turns to his guide and he says, who is that? And the guide says, her name is Sarah Smith. And she is one of the great ones here, but you would never have heard of her there. And his point was that this woman had given herself in love and service and humility in a life that just looked like ordinary faithfulness. But in the new heavens and the new earth, she was glorious beyond belief. Friends, that is what Jesus is talking about here. When he says that is true greatness, that is what he is pointing us at. That love and service and humility are true and good and beautiful in ways that position and title and authority and giftedness and success are not. Make no mistake, what Jesus is doing in these verses is he is calling every person in the church to servanthood. He is calling all of us to servanthood. I don't like the term servant leadership. Uh, that may be controversial. If that's super controversial, we can talk about it later. Uh, I don't like the term servant leadership because I think what it does is it takes what Jesus is commanding of everyone here and it reduces it to a technique to build relational capital in an organization. Jesus is calling all of us to servanthood. One of my professors in my organizational leadership program uh, is the one who made me not like the term servant leadership, so you can blame her if you don't like what I'm about to say. Uh, but she says, everyone is first called to be a servant. You may be a servant who is called to lead. This is what Jesus is telling us. We are all called to servanthood. And so to my five new ruling elders here at Heritage, I would offer this word as well. Authority in the church is given for the sake of others. You are called as an elder to give not of yourself, not to give some of your resources, but to give your very self on behalf of the people that God has entrusted you to care for. When church leaders forget this, or when church leaders ignore this, they begin to use the authority they have not to serve, 
but to be served. And when this happens, it is harmful, and it is destructive, and it is abusive to the flock that Jesus purchased with his own blood. And friends, we see it happen time and time again. And that may be some of your stories. Maybe you've experienced that in a church or in a Christian organization where you have been harmed or abused or you've been in a a relationship with destructive leadership that have, have lorded it over you. And if that's your experience, I'm sorry. And you should know that no one is more grieved over that than the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus gives authority. Jesus gives gifts. Everything Jesus entrusts to the leadership of the church, he gives to them so that they can serve and love the bride of Christ. Ruling elders and deacons and any other ministry leaders are called first to serve and only second to lead. And Jesus reminds us even in that, that leading looks like serving in the kingdom. That's some of what this teaches us about our posture in the church. But Jesus' words here are not only about our posture in the church, they're also about the church's posture in the world. And just as Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve, Jesus also, I think, is conveying here that the church is meant to be a picture of this posture in the world. The church is meant to be a picture, then, of the gospel in the world. And I think this passage is showing us that as the church engages the world, there are two truths we must keep absolutely together. And the first truth is the centrality of the cross. If the church engages the world without the cross, we're just another community service project. The church is the community that is shaped by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we never have the option of engaging in the world without also proclaiming the goodness of Christ and what he has done to rescue sinners from sin and death. If we move into the world and forget the proclamation of the cross, it is easy for the church to lose its character as the church and just to become an accommodation to the world around it. But there's a second danger. There's a second thing that we have to keep together as the church engaging in the world, and that is humility in service. We must maintain the centrality of the cross and humility in service. And that is Jesus is calling us as his people to move into the world with a posture of humble service to the world. We are called as God's people to pursue the common good, to pursue the flourishing for everyone who is made in God's image, which is everyone. You see this explicitly commanded in places like Jeremiah 29.7 when God commands the exiles who are going to live in Babylon that they should seek the welfare of the city where the Lord is sending them. They must care 
about the place that they live. They must care even about those who are hostile towards them. One of my seminary professors used to say to us, you are the plan. And by that he meant the church is God's plan for blessing the nations. We are the plan. The cross and humility and service must go together. If we forget humble service, though, if we forget that, we are going to be tempted to either retreat from the world and just fortify ourselves and and stay away from the world, or we're going to seek to dominate the world and take over. And I don't think either of those are what Jesus is calling us to do here. You see, friends, when we forget Jesus' words... We forget what true greatness really is. And when that happens, all too often what we've seen through history is that the church begins to clamor for worldly power. Christians certainly are called to steward power well where they have it. But the Christian hope has never been that we take over the world. And as we live in a culture where the church is losing cultural power and influence, what we have to recognize is this does not change the message of Jesus. This does not change what Christ is calling us to do. We are called to move into the world still in humble service and with the proclamation of the cross. And friends, when we hold those things together, the church is a beautiful gift of God, given to the world for the life of the world. That's how these words shape our posture in the world. But there's one final thing I think we see in this passage, and that is how it shapes our posture towards ourselves. And to look at that, we have to look back at the initial request from James and John's mom. In verses 22 and 23, she asks that the two boys can sit at the right and left hand, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They foolishly say, yep, nailed that one. What else you got, Jesus? He says, you will drink my cup, but it's not mine to grant who sits at my right and left hands. What Jesus is really saying here is a response to that question, are you able to drink the cup? Because the implicit message of Jesus' words here is you can't drink the cup, but you will. You can't drink it, but you will. And I think that that idea of you can't, but you will is really true of all of us as we seek to live out this vision of life that Christ sets forth for us here. We can't do it, but we will. You see, Jesus is calling us in these verses to live a cross-shaped life. He is calling us to die to ourselves, to pick up our crosses, and to follow him, to give not of ourselves, but to give our very selves to one another in humble service. And we have to just simply acknowledge and realize we can't do that. We can't do that because on our own we are selfish. We are self-centered. 
We are curved in on ourselves and self-obsessed because of sin. And if you go through your life thinking you are perfectly capable of living this life that Jesus is sketching out for us, you're either going to be unbearably prideful or you're going to fall into despair. And either way, you're going to feel like you've got to pretend to do this. And Jesus is saying again and again, and he's underlining it for us here, you can't do this. You can't live this life of humility and service, but you will. Because the point here is that Jesus is empowering us. He is shaping this very life in us. That's why verse 28 here is so absolutely centrally important. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, by his Holy Spirit, Jesus is forming this cross-shaped life in us. He is teaching us to love and serve not only one another in the church, but also a world that hates and rejects us. The Christian life is always cross-shaped, which means it is difficult. In fact, it's impossible. We can't do it. But in Christ, we will. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though we can't live this life, we will because of Christ. Father, let us take these words to heart. Let us be sobered by the reality of the life to which the gospel calls us, a life of humble service, of giving not only our resources or giving not only of ourselves, but giving our very selves to one another in love and service and humility. Father, shape this life in us. Make us a church that is a picture of your grace and your goodness and your gospel in the world. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.